Our Old Testament lesson this morning is found in Genesis chapter 16. We'll be reading the whole chapter together this morning as we continue in our study of the life of Abraham. Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we continue to look at the life of our forefather in the faith, Abraham, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear of your faithfulness in the midst of his and his wife's faithlessness. We entrust ourselves to you this morning and ask that your word this morning would alleviate all our doubts about your faithfulness. And we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Well, we've been looking at the life of Abraham, this great forefather of faith, a man of faith in Genesis chapters 12 through 15. And we've seen so far that Abraham, called by God, the recipient of great promises from God, is on quite the journey. 
He is on quite the journey. There are ups and downs. There are moments of triumph and moments of failure. There are moments of great faith and of great doubt. And I wonder this morning if any of you feel the length of the road, the way of faith, how long and arduous it can at times seem. Recently, I was alerted to this story of a young man named Ben Schlappig. Ben Schlappig, back in 2015, became a millionaire through his blog online called One Mile at a Time. You see, Ben Schlappig was one of this select group of obsessive, frequent flyers who lived almost their entire lives in the air. And at the age of 25, he had made a killing by being an endless traveler. Rolling Stone did a piece on Ben Schlappig back in 2015, and they demonstrate, they show him loving this lifestyle of endless travel, endless journeying. He says, I'm, I'm thankful I get to do what I love to do. But then in a revealing moment, Schlappig reflects on his experience at the airport in Delhi, India, where he watched a whole family of 20 picking someone up at the airport with balloons, signs, flowers, and he pauses. You can almost imagine the moment in the interview when he says, there's something beautiful about that. Because frequent traveling, endless traveling gets tiring, doesn't it? And the journey of faith is long, but we all at times wish that we could simply arrive. This morning we find Abraham and Sarah wishing that they could just arrive. We come to Genesis 16 on the heels of Genesis 15, not just one of the greatest passages of promise and of faith in the life of Abraham, but one of the greatest passages of God's promise and of anyone's faith in all of Scripture. We read that Abraham believes God's promise and it, his promise, and it was counted to him as righteousness because God had promised Abraham that he would give him offspring, offspring that would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. And he swore an oath that he would make it happen. But then we're plunged back into the hard reality of Abraham and Sarai's life here. And we read in verse 1 that Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Still no children. And so this kicks off a, a great, really tragic scene in the life of Abraham, but it's not without God's redemption. And so we'll break it down this morning. We'll see five things that happen on the long road of faith that happened to them and that happened to us still today. First of all, we'll see the drama of doubt. Secondly, we see the seduction of shortcuts. Thirdly, we see the consequences of compromise. And then finally, the turn in the passage where we see God's redemption and God's rebuke. So first, the drama of doubt. Again, on the heels of chapter 15, we're dropped like a family returning from vacation to find their house robbed into the hard realities of Abraham and Sarai's life. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Up till now, the camera has been focused on Abraham. Sarah, if she's in the scene at all, has been in the background, but now she comes into focus and we see her. We see her struggling over 10 years in the promised land. It's been 10 years since God called them. Still no child. 
and we see her among the many tents of their, at this point, massive household. We need not forget that Abraham and Sarai's household at this point is huge. In fact, in Genesis 14, when Abraham went to rescue Lot, his nephew, in battle, we read that he took with him 318 trained men who were born in his household. You know what that means? That means that there were a lot of babies in the tents of Abraham and Sarah. That was their household. They were at the head of it, the matriarch and the patriarch of this extended family of servants and workers. And at some point in those 10 years, and in one tent or another, there could be heard the sound of a crying baby in every tent except for theirs. 10 years, still no child. 10 years, still no fruit, still no fulfillment of God's promise. And it's not without reason, too, that the text doesn't just say that Sarah had born, had born no children, but it says that she had born Abram no children. She feels the weight of being the problem in their marriage, of being the one, it seems, who's letting her husband down. Are any of you 10 years in and still lacking some fruit, still wondering where the fulfillment is? Maybe even one year in, or maybe more, maybe 20, 30, 40, 50. Still no fruit, still not that specific fruit that you're longing for. And now longing is okay. And there are a bunch of prayers in the book of Psalms that express longing. Asking, how long, O Lord? Such is the longing of faith. But here we see longing turn into wallowing. Sarah begins to wallow in the hard realities of her life, and doubt takes root. It starts to slow cook. From how long, O Lord, she begins to speculate, does God even see? Does he even know? And so she questions God. In verse 2, she says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Not technically wrong theologically, is it? And yet we all know that this is the sidestep the age-old sidestep that says, God made me this way. God put me in this position so he'll understand if I take matters into my own hands. And that brings us to the second scene in this passage, the second thing we find when the road seems long and, and hard, and that is the seduction of shortcuts. A while back, I was working in my bathroom on a house project, uh, and I invited a plumber friend over, who's also a former Marine, and we're working, doing hard work, sweating several hours in, and we reach a point of decision in which we have to face this, this decision whether or not to jerry-rig a plumbing solution or to bust out my buddy's jackhammer and take it to the foundation of the house and go a much longer way about fixing this problem. And I asked my friend, what do you think we should do? And he said, well, I'm a Marine, so I was basically taught that there is the right way and then there's the easy way. So you tell me. But we all long for a shortcut, don't we? When the way seems hard, and that's what we see Sarai doing here, and, and, and she finds one. We read in verse one, in her female Egyptian servant named Hagar. And then she says to her husband, sleep with my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. 
When we are only looking at the hard realities in our lives, we feel that we need to search for a better way forward. And that's what Sarah does. And I, I'm sure if you're like me, hopefully, that when you read this passage, you were a little bit baffled by this and you wondered what in the world is this? But it's important for us to realize that this was not at all a, a, a crazy idea in the ancient world. This was a commonly uh, used practice for obtaining children, culturally acceptable, not at all uncommon, not at all wise. But there are actually law codes in the ancient world that contain laws written to explain how to go about this well. And so Sarai latches on to this option, slave surrogacy, as common as the modern forms of surrogacy and getting pregnant when you can't are today. It felt like something that everyone was doing, so it must be okay. But we know that this was a foolish decision. We know that they knew it was a foolish decision, and Sarah waited till she was 75 to propose it to her husband. Who knows how long the idea had been eating at her, the option had been in her mind, but she waits to present it because she knows it's foolish. In verse 3, the narrator, Moses, makes it pretty clear, did he not, when we read this, that this is a really stupid decision when he says, so... After they had lived 10 years in the land, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. It's a baffling sentence because it's a baffling decision. But when blinded by doubt, when wallowing in the hard realities of life, worldly compromises, worldly shortcuts that are acceptable and okay in the eyes of the world, start to look good. So she proposes the idea to Abraham, a common practice. And aren't all the shortcuts that we're tempted to take to reach fulfillment widely acceptable in the world's eyes? And that's where they're at. They know it's foolish, but they go forward. And that leads us to our third scene in this passage, and that is the consequences of their compromise. Proverbs 30 says this, under three things the earth trembles. Under four it cannot bear up. And then it lists three things that you'll, you can go and read on your own. The fourth thing is this, a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. And the earth does begin to tremble in this passage, doesn't it? This obviously stupid decision. And it's important to note, first of all, that Moses subtly but clearly in the way that he describes their decision, their shortcut taking here, is connecting the decision of Abraham and Sarah to a decision made earlier in the story of Genesis, the decision of Adam and Eve. Because with the same language, the same progression of verbs, Moses describes to us what Abram and Sarah did as her, take, her seeing Hagar and then taking her giving her to her husband and him sleeping with her. And it is the same progression of action where Eve saw the fruit, took it, gave it to her husband, and he ate. Because it's the same dynamic, the same drama of doubt playing out in their heart. It's the same dynamic that is still with us today. That obviously stupid and evil decisions start to look good to us. You know, recently... Um, one of our phones, and I'm in this position too, as a matter of fact, but my wife's phone started to go on the fritz. Uh, we're iPhone people. 
And if you have an iPhone, you know what this is like. Your phone starts to break down mysteriously right about the time when a new phone is released. And you start to wonder why this happens, and yet, in your frustration about the situation, what do you do? You go back to Apple or Verizon or whatever, and you buy another iPhone. Even though we know that it's gonna break down in another few years and we're gonna be back in the cycle paying again in this endless monthly payment of keeping up with a new phone, foolish decisions seize on their own disappointment to draw us back in. That's what's happening to Abraham and Sarah. They know this is dumb, but they proceed and things go south. The earth trembles under this foolish decision. We see that Hagar is used. She's taken, given, she's voiceless. And then we see that she grows hostile towards Sarah and she, it literally says she, Sarah became small and despicable in her eyes. And then Sarah, of course, feels the weight and the pain of this. She begins to hate the sin that she thought would help. She no longer says that I gave you my servant to go into her, but she says, I gave her to your embrace. And she feels the ugliness of what that must have been like, her husband to be with this other woman. And then Abram passes the buck and says, just do to her whatever you want. And he fails to protect the mother of his child. And so Sarai becomes an oppressor and she abuses Hagar even more and drives her in her pregnancy alone into the wilderness. As Bob Dylan once said, everything is broken. And the consequences to us seem obvious, but when blinded by doubt, we often just can't see them. They're unforeseen, and it begs the question, shouldn't we then just entrust ourselves to the one who can foresee the consequences? But they don't, and at this point we wonder, is there any hope for getting out of this mess? And this is where the passage turns. God intervenes and enters in, and in the last uh, 10 verses, we see God turn things around. First of all, we see his redemption of the situation. Some of you this morning know in your own lives that God can and does redeem the worst of messes. And here we see the pattern of how he does. Quickly, we see that the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, and as Hagar later calls him, is God as he appears in messenger form especially in moments of great distress, great affliction throughout the Old Testament. This mysterious figure, the angel of the Lord, disappears when we come to the pages of the New Testament for curious reasons. But the angel of the Lord intervenes, and we read in verse 7 that he finds Hagar. God enters in. He is the God who comes down into the wilderness, into the moment of affliction. And then we see that God calls her, and he calls her by name. The name that, curiously, Abraham and Sarah failed to use at any point in this passage as they considered using Hagar as an option for obtaining children, God here comes down and uses. Hagar's just a lowly servant. When I tell stories about a good dinner date or something like that, or great dinner. I don't usually 
include the name of my waiter or waitress. But God comes down and he says, Hagar. He calls her by name in the wilderness. And then he turns her. He turns her around and says, where have you come from and where are you going? And points out that Hagar, even in your affliction, you're not going the right way. It's a great lie in the modern world that someone who is afflicted cannot also be wrong. But we see here that Hagar, in her affliction, begins to flee in the wrong direction. She's going back to Egypt, as a matter of fact, where she's from. Where Abraham and Sarai also once fled when there was distress and affliction in the land in chapter 12. And the angel of the Lord intervenes and says, go back. Go back. He turns her back to the source of blessing, not just to Abraham and Sarah, the recipients of the blessing, who obviously here are failing miserably, to whom it would have been really hard to go back. But more than that, he tells her to go back to himself because he is the God who made these promises to Abraham and Sarah that it would be through them that he would bless the nations of the world, including this strange offspring of Ishmael. So he turns her and sends her back. We're reminded of God's call over and over again to all of us when he redeems us. He says, return, and if you return, in the book of Jeremiah, he says, to me you shall return. Go back, come back to me. And then this leads us finally to the last scene in the passage, which is a scene that's sort of out of the pages, beyond the pages of Genesis 16, as we need to imagine God's rebuke here for Abraham and Sarah. Imagine Hagar returning. Imagine what that moment would have been like for Sarah especially, when she sees on the horizon Hagar coming back, and she wonders as she's a far way, as she's a long ways off, what, what is she doing? And as she comes back into the camp, what are you doing here? Get out. But Hagar is returning with a two-point sermon for Abraham and Sarah. A two-point sermon in which she is the mouthpiece of God for them. She is the one by whom the Lord rebukes them for their lack of faith. And what is her two-point sermon? It's really one point. It's this. You've forgotten who your God is. Let me tell you. He appeared to me in the wilderness. He saw me in my affliction. And he told me that we're to name this child Ishmael, which translated means God hears. And then she says, and I, I saw him there. I, Hagar, your servant, your little slave girl, I saw your God in the wilderness. He appeared to me. And so I called him. And you should call him the God who sees. You should have remembered, Sarah, who your God was. And friends, this is how God always rebukes us. When the way of faith seems too long and too hard, and we're tempted to opt to go the way of sight, to take matters into our own hands, God doesn't rebuke us by saying, you're dumb. Just, just listen, just, 
Just sit down and be quiet. He rebukes us, no, not just with a simple wrong, but he rebukes us by reminding us of who he is. And he calls us to stop trying to play a role that wasn't made for us. Recently, we watched this little documentary about the uh, Christmas classic, Elf. Um, Elf is a movie starring Will Ferrell, for those of you who have seen it. And it's probably the most recent of movies that could actually classify as a Christmas classic. And I learned as we watched uh, how the movie Elf was written, that the movie was specifically written for Will Ferrell. And if you've seen the movie, you know that hardly anyone else in the world could have played Buddy the Elf like Will Ferrell. He's like 6'3", he's a goofball, and he enters into that role beautifully. But you could imagine someone else taking that role, some, you know, you could imagine Liam Neeson or some macho man, Arnold Schwarzenegger taking on the role, no good. It's always awkward and weird to play a role for which that was not made for you. But we're tempted to do that all the time, aren't we? We're tempted to take matters into our own hands and to cease letting God be God, to forfeit the way of faith for the way of sight. And now it will be 13 more years, 13 more years. They've already been 10 years in the land and Sarah is 75. Abram at the end of this story is 76. It'll be 13 more years until they have Isaac, until Sarah gets pregnant. The road is still hard. God sends us hard providences. And at times, we are tempted to think that his silence means that he is deaf, that he is blind. But here, Hagar returns and says loudly, God is not blind. He is not deaf to your affliction. He knows it. As a matter of fact, he entered into it. Today, we know brothers and sisters in Christ, that God entered not as the angel of the Lord who then quickly vanished, but he took on flesh in Jesus Christ and entered our affliction and saw us and became truly seeable, touchable, killable, that we might know that our God is with us, that he is the God who sees and who knows. And in our moments of doubt, in our frustration about the length of the path, we can trust him. We can trust that we will arrive, though the way is hard, though the road is long. So let's trust him. In your doubt, look to Jesus who came down and entered your affliction. Let's pray. Father, this morning we, as we look at faithlessness and are reminded of our own faithlessness, our doubt-filled hearts and our temptation to wallow in the hard realities of our lives that are very real. We ask that you would fill us with the comfort of your spirit. Remind us of who you are for us. Remind us that Jesus is with us on the long road, that he knows our affliction and that we are not alone in it. We entrust ourselves to you again. Help our unbelief. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.